Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. We're finishing up our Road to Renewal series this morning, and we've been studying the two-part book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which, as we've been saying, it's a story of revival told in five parts. So there's three episodes of return to Jerusalem, of restoration, of revival. And then there's two concluding sections, one happy and one sad. So in those first three sections, we saw Zerubbabel restores the temple, Ezra restores the Torah, Nehemiah restores the walls, and it's all leading to this overarching restoration of the covenant. And then we saw last week that The people came together. They rededicate themselves to obeying the law, to learning scripture. And then we get to this final section of the book and we reach this absolute anticlimax. And if you read the book, you you, you probably know what I mean. And what we'll see is that it's it's very carefully written. It's very carefully constructed to dismantle everything that's gone before in the rest of this book. So we're going to explore the ending of the book and what the implications are for us, because I've I've said over and over again that I really believe the Lord's been speaking to us powerfully through these texts, speaking to us about stirring up a new desire for revival, for renewing everything that's been broken down in in our worship, in our community, in our calling. And yet, what does it mean for the book of Nehemiah to end in this anticlimax in the way that it does? So there's something here for us I think that we can't afford to miss today. And I think the best way for you to see this is simply to read the ending of the book together. It's always a good idea to read the book that you're studying. So unless you're like me in in high school, I'd sometimes watch the movie. Uh, Don't do that, kids, okay? (laughs) Actually, it reminds me in my one university interview, I, I wrote down in my CV that I had read the classic Spanish book, Don Quixote. Okay. And I had. Problem was I read the abridged version. I read it in Spanish. I think it was still an achievement. But of course, in the interview, they asked me a question that got cut out of the abridged version. (laughs) So again, not the smartest thing to do. Better to read the actual book that you're studying. So, all right. We're going to read from chapter 12, verse 43, and we're going to see the ending of this book together. So this is after the walls are restored. Nehemiah has gathered all the people and they throw this amazing worship party. And it's, it's really cool. They, all the Levites, they encircle the city in praise and they meet. And, and we read about this in verse 43. There's this grand procession. And this is what it says. 1243, it says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So you know when things are going well in your church, when people are actually happy with the leadership, 
We don't get to experience that very often, but that's what's happening here. So you can tell that's going really well. All right. And you kind of, when you get to that point, you, you, you really want to read the end. But that's not the way the book ends. So things have gone so well. well we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to skip through this a little bit. Things have gone so well that clearly Nehemiah feels like he's fulfilled his mission. And so he returns to King Artaxerxes because that's what he said he would do. He returns to Persia. And this is where things begin to unravel. So let's pick up from verse 6 of chapter 13. Verse 6 of 13. It says, While this was taking place, I, that's Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For in the second, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, if you remember back to the rest of the story, Tobiah, the Amorite, was one of the sworn enemies of God's people who was mocking them all the way through the construction of the city walls. And not only that, but as an Amorite, he was actually, according to the law, he was banned from entering the temple because of the history of that small people group. And so Nehemiah says in verse 8, he says, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. There's echoes there of Jesus cleansing the temple, isn't there? It says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Now, what he's talking about there is that the, the tithes had, were not being collected into the church. And so the Levites were forced to go get other jobs, to go back to the farm. Verse 11, it says, So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And I'll skip down to verse 14. And here, Nehemiah prays this, this little prayer that we're going to see repeated three times through this section. It says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So, Here's the first unraveling. Remember, Zerubbabel had restored the temple. They rededicated it. They restored the tithe. They restored the sacrificial system. Now, how seriously are people actually taking it after all that? Turns out, not very seriously. They're inviting the enemies into the temple. And even the priests are, are compromised. And so what you see is Zerubbabel's revival is undone. And it carries on. Verse 15, it says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 
We skip down to verse 22 and it says, Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And here comes the second prayer. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So what was the second restoration, the second revival that we see in the book of Ezra? Well, it's Ezra had restored the Torah, the centrality of the law, and the people rededicated themselves to it. And it, it shaped their community once again around scripture. And yet, how seriously are they taking it? Well, here what they find is that the people are absolutely callously disregarding not just a minor law, the fourth commandment. And so Zerubbabel's revival was undone. Ezra's revival, undone. Verse 23, it says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. So Nehemiah loses his temper a little bit. This is the guy that at the start of the book was, was praying and faithfully, you know, like carefully weighing his words with the king. No, no, here he goes full, you know, rip the hair out mode. And it says, I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And we skip down to verse 30. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites each in his work and have provided the wood for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits and the final words of the book, a third prayer, remember me, oh my God, for good. That's the end of the book. So Zerubbabel's revival, undone. Ezra's revival, undone. Nehemiah had restored the walls of the city that served to protect, to bring identity to the people so that they could return to their calling, which was to be a holy people set apart for God. And again, we ask, how seriously are they taking it? Not very. Once again, we find them intermarrying with the people of the land. And, and it's about this religious compromise, this religious mixture. And the worst thing that he finds is their kids, they're not even bothering to, to pass on the identity to their kids. The kids don't even speak Hebrew anymore. So they're not even passing on the cultural identity. And so Nehemiah's revival is undone. And so that's the end of the book. Every single one of the achievements that we'd seen through the first three sections completely unraveled one by one, very intentionally, systematically is how the author presents this. And you think, wow, what a downer. 
What an anticlimax to the book. I mean, don't you wish it would have ended in chapter 12? Right? And they all threw the worship party and everyone lived happily ever after. Now, what you need to realize is that this isn't really only the end of this particular book. In the most traditional orderings of the Hebrew scriptures, this is part of the last section of scripture. And if you look chronologically at at the, the, the historical trajectory of scripture, these are the very last historical events that happen in the Old Testament. So in a way, these are not only the last words of the book, these are the last words of the entire Old Testament. And so when you look up, if you just Google or if you look on Amazon and you look up books on Nehemiah, I've already mentioned almost all of them, if not all of them, focus on Nehemiah's great leadership principles, you know, how to get your building project done as a church, all these, these great, practical, helpful things. And I think if the book ended in chapter 12, then we could safely come away with kind of that being the ultimate message of the book. Press on for God. You know, if it ended at chapter 12, what impression would it leave you with? It would leave you with, you know, they faced obstacles, but the people of God persevered. They carried on and look, they built the wall and the temple was restored. Amen, amen. But given that it actually ends with chapter 13, that simply cannot be the actual message of the book. It doesn't leave us with that option. And what we actually have here, this is the opposite of the Hollywood ending. It's full of ambiguity. It's it's full of mixed results. It's full of question marks. Even Nehemiah, who earlier was set up as this absolute paragon of of great leadership, even he loses his cool, starts beating people up and forcing them to swear an oath, which, you know, as every parent knows, is super effective. Right? Right? So when you, when you actually read chapter 13, I think the words that come to mind for me, another book we studied in high school, John Steinbeck of Mice and Men. And that, that title is a quote from the Scottish poet, Robbie Burns. And this is what Robert Burns said. He said, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And that's what gives the the title to our message today. I almost named the whole series that, but I figured it's a little bit too, too much of a downer. So when you read those words from, from Robbie Burns, you know, can't you picture Nehemiah, you know, going to the pub after all this and kind of, reading that. <laughs> That's a tradition in Scotland, Robbie Burns Day, they go and read his poetry. And so, you know, we got to ask, in this book that's been so full of these high moments, these, these memorable acts and everything, why does the author intentionally choose to end on this total anticlimax? He could have chosen to end in chapter 12. That would have been a very satisfying ending. But like we saw, it, it would, would have completely changed the, the meaning that you take away from the book. Now, why is it hard for us to take an ending like this? And I was thinking about this. 
Because I think it's especially hard within American culture because I think we as Americans, we, we struggle to abide mixed results. I want to give you two examples of that, all right? Now, in a lot of democracies around the world, when there's no clear winner in an election, sometimes you'll find they form coalitions and they share power. Can you imagine that happening here for even 10 seconds? We can't abide that. Now, I think an even better example comes from sports, all right? Because if you look at the sports that are popular around the world, and then you look at, at you know, the, the, the big, most popular American sports, none of them can end in a tie. I know technically there's some situations where maybe they could, but they virtually never end in a tie. Americans can't abide a draw at the end of a game. And so I think it's actually one of the reasons why soccer has kind of struggled to gain a foothold because it's kind of like, I think in, in, in the American t- context, it's kind of like, why are you going to play, you know, hour and a half, two hours and the end result be the same as if you never played the game in the first place, right? We need clear winners. We need black and white at the end of the game. And, and you know, I get all that. But I think what it is is kind of a reflection of the fact that the, the whole modern world is defined by measurable, controlled endings. Everything is quantifiable results, measurable outcomes, guaranteed returns on investment. And so we don't do well with mixed results. We don't do well with things that are harder to quantify or measure. And so that can seep into the church as well, because there's certain things that are very hard. To, how, do you me- how do you measure spiritual growth? We can measure attendance. We can measure how many people sign up to a course. And we can come away from that thinking, the church is doing great. Everyone's growing. And the reality is, our inner spiritual lives are a completely different thing that is much harder to measure. I don't even know if we can measure it in, in, because God knows the heart. Ultimately, But here's the thing. Here's what I believe is part of the message of Nehemiah to a modern world. And it's this. Despite our best efforts, we cannot control the outcome of our lives. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Despite our best efforts, we cannot control the outcome of our lives. And I think as, as we think about our lives, we all want, we all desire, and I think it's, it's the right desire, it's a good desire, we desire for our lives to end at chapter 12, right? We want the, 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 the celebration of life where all the great deeds are recounted and everyone says yes and amen and, and you know, the kids are established and well provided for with the 401k and the savings and the, and the, and the ministry and the family and the business carries on and sails off into the sunset and we're remembered as this wonderful person for generations to come. That's every, you know, that's how we all picture the end of our story or we hope the end of our story should go. And of course, that's natural. We should want that. But so many of us come to find That is not actually how life works most of the time. And here's where the scripture offers us a corrective. If it would have ended at chapter 12, then that's the ending point of the Old Testament. And said, you know, if you, if you just work hard, if you plan well, if you execute, if you lead well, then all, everything's going to work out just fine. This is, this is not idealism. This is realism. In this book, 
Because almost every leader will tell you, anytime you try and do something, you inevitably meet resistance and you inevitably meet sabotage. And you, you meet what's called the law of unintended consequences. Because even if you do your absolute best as a leader and you build this wonderful thing, as you're building your best values into it, guess what? You're also building your flaws into it. And we're blind to those things most of the time. And so Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, these great leaders, they gave their all. They made, each of them made a significant impact in their lives. They're remembered in scripture. And yet they all experienced mixed results, unintended consequences. And so despite our obsession with controlling the outcome and and securing a legacy, the truth is most of the things that really matter in life, we don't have control over the outcome. I remember when I was about to become a father for the first time, or maybe, I think Nia had maybe just been born and Nia's ill today. So Nia, hi. And I remember it, it was those early days and I'm, and I'm walking the dog and God's always speaking to me while I'm walking the dog. It's late at night. And, and it hit me. All the love, all the good that I desired for her life, I didn't actually, in the end, have control over it. I can't make her know and love God and experience the joy of knowing Jesus. I can't make all the decisions for her that will, that will, you know, set her on the right track. You know, and every parent is nodding because they understand that you, you, you can try and do that. But what happens is you end up controlling your kids and manipulating them and, and, and pushing them away. What actually has to happen when you love them is that you have to, to a degree, you have to let them go. You have to trust God with the outcome of their lives. And, Many of you know that a lot better than I do, but that hit me even from the first days of my first daughter being born. And so this is something that scripture talks about a lot, actually. It reminds us of this in many places, especially just read the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, you're going to plant stuff, you're going to build stuff, and guess what? Other people are going to eat the fruit of your vines. Other people are going to live in the house that you built with your bare hands. And so just as we've been seeing through this series that, we're ultimately unable to manufacture, to, to, to ensure that revival happens. It's out of our hands. There's a lot of these things in life that are simply out of our hands. We don't have control over them. And so where does that leave us? Because we all want our lives to be a success. Everyone wants their story to end in chapter 12. We want our lives to be success. But the question is, how do we measure success? And so I believe the message we need to hear is this. The only true success in God's eyes is faithfulness to our calling. The only true success in God's eyes is faithfulness to our calling. I remember being in our theology class. This is 10 years ago now, which makes me feel really old. And I remember a few of us went on a trip afterwards and, and, you know, it was this group of 24, you know, really bright, ambitious students. They wanted to go places in ministry and, and, and do things for God. And, and one of the, one of our friends asked, you know, who do you think, you look at the class, who do you think is going to be most successful? And I thought, now he's asking that. And I know he's not thinking of me. I know he's not thinking of me. 
But my response was, well, it depends what you're aiming at, how you measure success. It depends what your goal is. And so we got to ask, when we talk about success of a human life, what was God's aim in creating human beings? How does God define a successful human life? And I've already given you the answer there, but let's, let's look at some of the answers that are wrong. You know, those memes like wrong answers only. Was God's aim in creating human beings that we would be moral, good little boys and girls? Well, if that's the case, then success in God's eyes would be measured by our moral performance. That would be success. Was God's intention, was his goal that human beings would simply be his servants, that they would carry out his, his will? Well, then you would measure success by your achievements for God. Was God's intention to merely make us instruments of his power, to extend his power through the earth? Well, if that were the case, then you would measure success by political influence, by governmental authority. Those aren't the reasons that God created us. God created us to love him. To love him, and you say, well, that's self-centered. Well, no, it's not because, well, for you, it would be self-centered because if someone puts you at the center of their universe, well, you're ultimately going to fail them. But for God to put himself at the center of the universe, it's the only right thing for him to do because he is the greatest being in the universe. It is morally right to love him. He created us to love him. Why? Because he is the greatest being in all the universe. And to know him, to love him, brings our greatest fulfillment. It brings our greatest joy. And it ultimately brings him the greatest glory. I talked about that a little bit last week. God created us to love him. And so if that's, if that's God's created intention for humanity, well, you have to ask, how do you measure success in love? I think you measure success in, in loving relationships. You measure it in faithfulness. I mean, why else do we celebrate anniversaries, right? And we applaud, I think, Polly's parents, 70 years married, right? 70 years. And, we, and Elvis say, wow, because, you know, why is that impressive? Because that is such a measure. You say, how much must they love each other? to stick together for that long. Well, that's a measure of love. You measure love by faithfulness. And so here's something that, that I needed to hear at one point in my life, and I need to hear it constantly, and maybe you do too, which is this. God spells success faithfulness. God spells success faithfulness. You know, it's so easy for us to get hung up on whether I'm making a difference or whether, you know, I'm popular or people like me or whether what I'm building will last. But none of those things ultimately are things that you can control. None of those things are actually within your power to ensure the outcome. And so, but it's even more than that. Guess what? Those things are also not what you're called to. Your calling is to be faithful. And so God spells success, faithfulness. 
And so in a way, I think you can actually describe the entire story of scripture in this way. God creates humanity with a calling and that calling is abandoned through sin. We chose to love other things more than we loved God. And so when you're living out of line with your calling, what happens is everything else is, is out of sync. It's out of line. And so humanity begins to treat creation wrongly. And so God didn't abandon us. He sets this plan in motion and he calls a single man. He calls Abram and he calls him into a covenant relationship. And what does that covenant relationship require? It requires faith. It requires that he be faithful to God. And so he gives Abram a son and now he forms a family. And this is all part of this, this plan that he set in motion. God, he gives Abram a son and he now forms a family that's called to be faithful to him. And so that family grows into a tribe, which is called to be faithful. And the tribe grows into a people and the people grows into a nation and the nation grows into a kingdom. And all the while, the calling is the same over, over Israel to be faithful to the covenant God. And yet you read the story. How many people are, are, have ever done the, the, the Bible in a year? You know, and you read, so you're reading through the books of the Old Testament and it can get a little annoying. It's kind of like, guys, really again? Again with the foreign wives, you know? <laughs> and it's like this, this continuous story. I have a foreign wife, by the way, so, you know, from an American perspective. So it's not about that. Um, <laughs> I'm foreign to her too, so. You read, you read the Bible though, and it's like this, this over and over again, this cycle of failure after failure after failure after failure. And it's almost like God was taking, I think actually this is what God's doing in the story of scripture is that he's, he's, taking, he's taking humanity. He's called humanity to this, this, this loving relationship with him. And, and he's showing, you know, a single man, a family, a tribe, a nation, a people, he goes through every single human institution and one by one, he shows us this is not enough. This will not get you back. This will not take you as far as you need to go. And so the miracles of the desert didn't do it. You know, sometimes you think, oh, if I could just see the miracles, like the, 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 the splitting of the Red Sea. Well, no, very quickly, the people in the desert started rebelling against God. That didn't do it. That didn't change their heart. Well, the, the punishment of the exile, you know, if you really want your kid to change, you just got to make sure they, they, they get that really good discipline and they're going to come out the other side and be changed. Well, that didn't do it either. And so what you have in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's like the last ditch effort. The last time, okay, we're really going to give it everything we've got. Maybe this new wave of zeal and revival and rededication will do it. And the answer is, nope. And I think so much of the time, this makes me think of is so much of the time we can assume if we just witnessed the right miracle, if we just were in the right place, if we really knew we were doing the right thing, then that would enable us to fulfill our calling. That will, that, you know, and so the grass is always greener in, in the other ministry, the other job, the other, whatever it is. 
But here's what the story of scripture tells us. Every single one of those attempts ends in failure. What the people needed, what God's people needed to restore them to covenant faithfulness was not a better system of government. It was not more passion. It was not better education and knowledge of the scriptures. What they needed was a transformation. And so the point, I think what the the story points us to is this. Humanity was called not to something or somewhere, but to someone. Humanity is called not to something or somewhere, but someone. And so we've seen, I've repeated a few times through the course of this book, that when you get into the way that the biblical authors thought, they, they start off by painting Ezra as the new Moses, right? They start off then by painting Nehemiah as the new Joshua, and so there's this, the, 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 I think the second verse of Ezra says this, all this happened to fulfill the words spoken by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. And so there's this, there's this hope that maybe the new covenant is going to come about through this. Maybe everything that God promised is going to come about through this. And the ending clearly shows this was not the ultimate fulfillment of those promises, of those prophecies. And so what it does, and, and even this is not, not only a Christian kind of reading back with the benefit of hindsight kind of thing, but uh, uh, Jewish scholars will also point this out, that what this is designed to do in the narrative, the way that the, the author of this book is thinking, what this is designed to do is to tell us this was not the ultimate fulfillment. What you need to do is set your eyes forward for the hope that is yet to come of this fulfillment. It's yet to come. It's yet to be fulfilled. And so it's all over the place. That, that technique in scripture of, of foreshadowing, of, of repeating archetypes, this is simply how the biblical authors thought. The story of the Exodus is keep, keeps getting retold and retold. And so what you find in the New Testament is that there's, it's, there's no exception. The gospel writers, they do the very same thing. And you see that Jesus, they say, this is, this is the man they were looking forward to, to fulfill all of these things that were left undone. And you see Jesus fulfills each of the things that Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel had set out to do. Jesus is the one that actually comes along and fulfills them. So Zerubbabel had, had set out to renew the temple. Jesus arrives and he says, one that is greater than the temple is here. I am the presence of God where heaven meets earth. And when you're in me, you don't have to come to a physical building. You can worship me everywhere in spirit and in truth. I am the new temple. And my body, the church, in me becomes the new temple. So he fulfills what Zerubbabel set out to do. And Jesus, he comes and he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to do what? Fulfill it. When Ezra brings the law back into the people's hearts and they rededicate themselves to it. Well, Jesus says, I have come and fulfilled the law. Every requirement of the law, I fulfilled it. And so he fulfills what Ezra had in his heart. And then what you see is he forms what what Nehemiah had in his heart to rebuild the walls as, as protection and identity. Jesus comes and he says, I am making a new people that will be known by my name. I will be their refuge. 
I will be their wall of protection. They will be identified by me. No longer by the walls around their cities and their tribe and tongue and ethnicity. They'll be known by their affiliation to me. And so Jesus, he's, he's the new and better Zerubbabel. He's the new and better Ezra. He's the new and better Nehemiah. And you can do that. There's a great, if you, I've probably mentioned this before, but there's a great video on YouTube that you should look up by Tim Keller. It's called, The Bible is Not About You. It's a good one. You can just leave it there. It's good. But <laughs> the Bible's not about you. And what he does is he goes through every single major character through scripture. And he shows how Jesus is the new and better fulfillment of that character. And so what's being shown here, what the, what the gospels are so emphatic on and what the, the Old Testament had pointed forward to was that Jesus completed what human achievement never could. And it wasn't because he followed the rules properly, although he did. It wasn't because he, he suffered the, the great punishment, although he did. It wasn't because he performed the right miracles, although he did. It was because he was faithful to the Father. Jesus was worthy to unravel the scroll because he was faithful. He restores the covenant faithfulness that, that Israel owed to God, that humanity owed to God. Jesus comes and he lives it out. And so he is the faithful one. And so the point is this, Jesus restores our calling by fulfilling what we could not. And it's not just to, to, to be moral. It's not just to extend his power and influence. It's not just for, you know, any other end. It's so that we could be restored to our calling. Now, one of my old tutors, Oz Guinness, he wrote this classic book on Christian calling. It's called The Call. If you haven't read that, especially if you're a young person, you've got to read that book. Great book. And the point in that book is that there's so many distortions of calling, but the reality is every single person has the exact same primary calling. And he says, because the idea of calling means nothing without a caller. It means nothing without a caller. And every single human being has the same primary calling, which is follow me. Follow me. Our calling is to him. Our calling is to be faithful to him, to love him. That is the central part of the Christian life and it overrides everything else. So that's, everyone has the same primary calling, but what Osganis goes on to talk about is that there's such a thing as a secondary calling. Now, some people have a very clear sense of a secondary calling that, I, I, you know, I'm called to be a doctor or I'm called to be a, you know, whatever it is. Not everyone has that clear sense of calling in the secondary sense. But the thing is, we spend so much of our time worrying more about that secondary thing than we do about the primary thing. And God is so much more interested, not in where you are and what you're doing, but in who you're becoming and who you're following. Your calling, I don't care who you are, your calling is to know him, to love him, to follow him. That is where you find the fulfillment of your purpose. You know, and my generation, millennials are famous for, you know, 
changing jobs every couple years because it's like, oh, this isn't really fulfilling me. This isn't, you know, and there's, there's something in us that is, is, is wants to operate in our calling. And this is it. This is it. Our primary purpose in life is to be faithful to him. And that pleases him. Why? Because he loves us. And what pleases the heart of a lover more than the faithfulness of their beloved? So we need to let go. Here's, here's, here's the message here. This could almost be the entire thing. If you, as Mike Stoffer says, you know, if you came away with one thing from this message, this, this could be it. Let go of trying to control all the outcomes of your life and just focus on being faithful to him. Could it be any simpler than that? I'm not saying that's easy, but it is very simple. That is where true success lies. The kind of success that actually lasts, that's actually meaningful. You know, and, and as I read about Nehemiah, I relate to what I imagine he must have been feeling through some of this. You know, Nehemiah was a man of big ambitions. He, he got to see many of those ambitions actually come to fruition within his lifetime. But then he also got to see them unravel towards the end of the story. And so it didn't lead to the clear, measurable results that I'm sure he expected or hoped for. And even when it did, it didn't last very long. It was kind of skin deep. And so is the message of this book, well, Ezra and Nehemiah, they shouldn't have even tried. What was the point? In the end, the people just went back to the same stuff. Well, no, that's not the message either. The message about, you know, you just being faithful is not just that you sit back and do nothing. No, you, you, you apply everything in, in your obedience to God and your following of God. Because here's the thing. When we don't see the measurable results, the outcomes that we so desperately want to control, when we, even when we don't see them, it's not in vain. Why? Because we are part of a bigger story. We're part of a bigger story. makes me think of my, my grandmother, Joy, that many of you know, knew. She would always, a lot of times she would say, well, you know, I didn't really do anything important in my life. I didn't go to college. I didn't have a career. You know what? I, you know, when she passed away, I looked back on her life and I thought, man, how much fruit did her life bear? In the people that she loved, the, 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 you know, not to mention the fact that through her, largely a lot of my family came to faith. And so this, this is part of the history of this church, simple faithfulness. And so it's part of a bigger story. When you're looking at your life and you, you look back and, and you regret certain things that maybe didn't end up the way that you wanted and you say, God, was that just a waste of time? no. Do not grow weary in doing good. For if you persevere, if you continue being faithful, God will bring the harvest in the right time. And that time may not be in your lifetime. And that's what you see in Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, that that the harvest did come. They were part of a larger story. They were contributing to the grand narrative of God's salvation, but they didn't get to see all those outcomes in their lifetime. But it didn't mean it wasn't worth it. And here's the thing. You hear all this talk about legacy and, and, and 
It's not that legacy is bad, but we don't work for legacy. That's not the goal of the Christian life. We don't work for the sake of institutions that will outlast us. We don't work for measurable outcomes. We work for him. We work for him. And he measures our success by our faithfulness. The outcomes, the fruits, that's his problem. (laughs) You know, Paul said, I planted and, and another watered, but God provided the growth. God provided the fruit. That's in his hand. All I can do is what is within my ability with what God's given me to do. And I offer my utmost for his highest. And I trust him with everything beyond that, because you know what? I, there's no sense worrying about it. I can't make it happen anyway. And I want to end with this. There's this beautiful story that illustrates this really well. It's by J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings, of course. And it's a short story that he wrote at the end of the thirties. Just, I think it was just on the, the eve of, of the second world war. It's called, the story is called Leaf by Niggle. Right? And it's a story of a painter by the name Niggle. And he's, he's niggling about things. That's kind of the name of the, you know, the reason why the name. So it's the story of this painter named Niggle. And his, his sole ambition in life is to paint this beautiful tree that he, he has envisioned in, in, his, in his heart. But life keeps on getting in the way. And all he can seem to come close to finishing is one single leaf of this tree. And he's trying to do more. And every time something butts in, there's an interruption, whether it's circumstances, whether it's necessities around the house, whether it's other people, whether it's his own lack of motivation, he never seems to be able to complete the work that's in his heart to do. And not only that, but all the people around him They don't appreciate art and they tell him, well, that's just a waste of time. That's a waste of resources. And so, you know, you should really be using the canvas and the wood frame in your picture to, you know, build a house or to make a tent or or whatever it is. So it's a waste of time. And so one day he's on the verge of this this breakthrough in his painting and his neighbor, Parrish, turns up. I think this may be a subtle, you know, dig at church people. (laughs) Tolkien was a Catholic, of course, a believing Catholic, practicing Catholic. His neighbor Parrish visits him and he asks him this really inconvenient favor. And right in the middle of trying to do this favor for his neighbor Parrish, Niggle gets sick and he, and he dies. And he never gets to complete his life's work. And after his death, the, the canvas for the painting and the wood frame, it's taken away and broken down and used for building materials. And the only bit that is kept is this single leaf. And it gets hung up in some backwater museum and his name is forgotten. And all that's left is this little placard that says, Leaf by Niggle. The entire result of his life's work. But Niggle awakes to find himself on a train. And he gets off this train and doesn't know where he is, but he's in this this kind of countryside paradise that somehow feels familiar and somehow feels different. And he's given a bike and he starts riding his bike through the countryside and he comes around a corner and he looks up and he falls off his bike because there it is, his tree. He sees his tree. 
And it's his tree that not only, it wasn't only the bits that he, that he actually made, but it was, it was everything that he had in his heart to complete, but he never was able to complete it. It was there. It was real. And what he finds out is that all of the most beautiful leaves on that tree, they came about as the result of those annoyances from his neighbor, the times where he helped his neighbor and he thought it was a distraction that was actually producing this fruit for eternity. And so all the obstacles that got in the way that he thought were keeping him from his calling were actually contributing to his calling. And it was those things in the end that were shaping his character. It's a great story. You can go, it's only 10 pages long. You can go read it online. But it moves me because here's, here's the point I want to end on. And I, I, some of us need to hear this today. Even though our work may be flawed in this life, our work for the caller contributes to eternity. When you're working for the caller, even the things that seem like distractions, they're contributing to eternity. They're not in vain. Our work in this life, it's never complete. That's what Robert Burns points out, that despite your best efforts, there will be flaws. Things will go awry. Things will be left unfinished. But in Christ, our work is not in vain. And I think Robbie Burns, it rings true because it's true about this life, but what he didn't take into account was the resurrection. Robert Burns didn't take into account the resurrection, the glorified, the new heaven and new earth. And actually, when you read in Isaiah about the picture of the new heavens and the new earth, what it talks about is that the, all the nations of the earth stream into the new Jerusalem with all of their, their best works their greatest cultural artifacts. They're brought into New Jerusalem and they're, they're glorified and they glorify God. And so as we're, we're talking about revival and we're talking about this, this, this new season of the church and I've got big things in my heart and you've got big things in your heart and, and we're going to pursue them and God's calling us to them. But we, we got to keep at the center that he doesn't measure our success by those achievements. He measures our success by our faithfulness to him. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He will complete it. And so I don't know if you ever feel like, well, I don't know if I'm really making a difference or, or this is something to hold on to. This is something to take the weight off of us. And I think it can give us a new boldness as we follow him. And it also, as leaders, it, it, it should humble us as we lead other people. And, and not get mixed up in, in how we measure success. And the last thing I want to say here is that as, as we're experiencing all of this, just like, like Niggle did in his story, it's about finding God in those interruptions. It's about finding God in those inconveniences that you think are a distraction, but actually they're contributing to your character. They're contributing to your work in eternity. 
Because the thing is, Niggle, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to focus on, all the, on the painting because that's what he really liked to do. He really didn't like helping people with their building projects and doing little errands. But, but what those things were doing was working on the parts of his character that he would never work on by choice. Right? That's why God puts those things into our lives. And so in those surprises, they're not derailing his purposes for your life. You may be in a moment in your life where you feel like things are really going in a way you didn't expect. And, and God is there with you in that. He has purposes for you in that. And his plans will not be derailed. And when you continue to be faithful to him, that is what is contributing to eternity. So why don't we pray? I'm going to invite the, the worship teams back up at both campuses. And I just want to, I want to issue an invitation as they're, as they're coming up. And we'll end with, with a song about God's faithfulness. But there may be someone here, there may be someone listening online or in Mukunji who they hear that invitation from Jesus and say, you know what? I've never responded to his invitation. I've never said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. If that's you, you can, you can do that. That invitation is for you and you can respond right now. <laughs> you can respond later in, in the privacy of your own room or wherever you, you, you want to. But Jesus is inviting you into that adventure with him. And the way we do that is simply by talking to him and receiving that invitation and saying, Jesus, I'm sorry for how I've loved other things more than you. And that sin has, has ruined my life. Jesus, thank you that you loved me so much that you came and you gave yourself for me on the cross. Thank you that you resurrected so that I could have a new life. Jesus, please accept me into your family now. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Please give me your Holy Spirit and make me a new person. And I promise you, when you do that and when you, when you set your life on him and follow him, he will never disappoint you and he will well, we may end up disappointed sometimes, but he will never abandon you. He will always be faithful to you and it will change your life. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.